Hello, Literature Guy listeners. This is your host, Jesse Weiler, and we have another great episode for you. This week, we are talking about sacraments, and we had some really great conversations. In particular, I really enjoyed the uh, part where we talk about the sacrament of uh, confirmation and how that can be more or less fruitful depending on your state of mind when you receive the sacrament. So without further ado, episode 12 of The Liturgy Guys. Enjoy. I'm going to talk to you today about the Mass. The liturgy is what enculturates the gospel for us. What are you, some kind of altar boy? And, and it enculturates it into our day-to-day life, our, our day-to-day existence. It's pretty dang exciting, huh? We're called not to some crapshoot called life, but to an adventure in fidelity that beckons us to cast out to the deep. The Liturgical Institute is proud to present The Liturgy Guys. All right, so we've talked a lot on this podcast about sacramental signs, holy images, things that we can see, taste, touch, hear, that point to, point, point to Christ that say, uh, you know, this is where we want to orient things. Now, we want to talk specifically about sacraments, mm-hmm. not just sacramental signs, but sacraments. So what is, a, what is a sacrament? Let me ask you that. What is a sacrament? Oh, man. I did not prepare for this quiz. I am on this podcast because I don't know this information. <laughs> your parents, uh, it seems like older Catholics who went through, not through your parents or any of our parents. Or, I, I'm sure my mom is listening to this. Mom, mm-hmm. I don't think you're that old, okay? <laughs> but uh, Catholics who went to CCD or catechism or Catholic school uh, some time ago may have used the Baltimore Catechism. And there, it seems to me, two things that uh, Catholics remember from the Baltimore Catechism. Why did God make me? That's the first one, to know, love, and serve him in this life and to be happy with him forever in the next. Did you know that, Jesse? I didn't know that. Yeah, okay. And the second question that uh, uh, people remember the answer to is, what is a sacrament? And the answer from the Baltimore Catechism is simply an outward sign instituted by Christ to give grace. So it seems like most people at least remember that of a certain age. So the a real short answer to that question is a sacrament is an outward sign instituted by Christ to give grace. We don't use uh, the Baltimore Catechism as much as we may have. We have, a, we have the new catechism of the Catholic Church, and it's much bigger than the Baltimore Catechism, and its answers bigger, are, better. are much uh, longer <laughs> than those in the Baltimore Catechism. And in the, the new catechism of the Catholic Church... It, uh, of course, doesn't say anything different from what the Baltimore answer was, but it expands a little bit. And it says that uh, a sacrament is an efficacious sign of grace instituted by Christ and entrusted to his church by which divine life is dispensed to us through the work of the Holy Spirit. So it's a little bit longer, but it's still getting to the same points. There's this outward part that makes present an inward reality. No, I got in trouble for asking this the last time. I believe you both jumped on me, but I said, what does efficacious mean, Chris? Something that is effective. Hey, I'll ask the questions here. That's very important. I think that's really important. Are we playing good liturgies, bad liturgies? (laughs) You decide which is which. Well, the reason I ask it is not because I don't know what the word means, but because I think a lot of people say, I have to go to church because it's my duty. I have to go to the church. If I don't go to church on Sunday, it's a mortal sin, or I have to do this because my mother said so, or it's always been that way. But to really say, I want to be changed. I want to be transformed. I want the divine energies that come from the heart and mind and whatever existence of God the Father to be operative in me. And this is the way they're delivered to me. That's really important stuff. Mm. Now, I, 
I guess I, just to jump in here, are we talking specifically about the quote unquote seven sacraments that we all know about? Um, or are we talking about something that is bigger and beyond that? Well, well, I think what we're going to talk about today, and this is not unrelated though, but what we'll talk about today is what the church means when she speaks of the seven sacraments. But even before she gets to that point, I mean, the church uses the term sacrament in a much broader context. And even in the scriptures, Jesus asks Philip, uh, Philip says, uh, show us the father. And Philip says, uh, I, have I been with you all this time and still you're asking me this? Whoever has seen me has seen the father. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. This is kind of a sacramental uh, expression that to see Jesus is to encounter the unseen and invisible reality of God the Father. Or St. Paul will say Jesus is the image of the invisible God. This is what we believe a sacrament to be. St. Augustine will say there is no other sacrament or mystery of God except Christ. So in the very largest context, uh, sacrament can be used in a very broad term as something visible and physical that manifests and makes present an unseen reality. But the church says that, uh, this is in the Catechism at 1117, uh, the church has discerned over the centuries that among the liturgical celebrations that are seven that are in the strict sense of the term, sacraments instituted by the Lord. And so there's a, this strict or more narrow sense of the term sacrament, and that'll be the topic of this podcast. What does the church mean by one of the seven sacraments? And people speak sometimes of small s sacraments and large s sacraments, the large s meaning the seven sacraments of the church. But the whole world is sacramental in a sense, in that everything that is reveals the God who made it. And so uh, if there's an invisible reality somewhere being manifested by some tangible earthly material thing, you can speak of that uh, as a sacrament. And I, I feel like we hear this from the church a lot. We have uh, the church is, is in the, especially the catechism is a guide for us in, in, in our lives. But we, we often hear that, you know, we have something, this is the ideal. Um, but, you know, and then here are, here are the minor parts to that. But we're talking about big S sacrament, the ideal. This is something that is, you know, more, more specific to the, the definition has everything in its completeness. I think so, yeah. yeah. So, what is this definition again? An efficacious sign of grace instituted by Christ and entrusted to his church by which divine life is dispensed to us through the working of the Holy Spirit. What does it mean? You want to pick it apart? Go ahead, one at a time. All right. Should we go back to efficacious? Sure. What does it mean that a sacrament is an efficacious sign? Or maybe we should start even before that. What is it that it's a sign? We should recall this, that a sacrament is, in the, is a species of sign where there's something outward that you can see, smell, taste, touch, or hear that brings along with it an unseen reality. So a sacrament is a type of sign or symbol. It's not just a sign, it's not just a symbol, but it, it hinges upon this, this element that you can encounter with your senses. But when she says that this is an efficacious sign or an effective sign, what she means is that when the sacrament signifies or symbolizes, it does what it says it's symbolizing. So when that water is poured over the baby's head and the words are said, uh, it actually is drowning the old self, giving new life, and cleansing from sin. It's actually doing that. It's effective. It's efficacious. It does what it says it's going to do. Right. One of these Catholic maxims is signs confer grace by signifying. It sounds a little funny, but it's the making knowable 
that makes the grace conferred. So there are different notions, say, you know, if you're baptized in certain Christian traditions, they'll say, well, the, the real desire for baptism is in the heart, and the pouring of water is just this external sign that makes people know what the heart wants, and the heart is the real uh, place where the action happens. But in the Catholic system, nope, if you don't pour the water, you're not baptized. So it's the actual signification of water pouring with the proper disposition of the person being baptized. That's what confers the grace. It's always attached to the doing of this thing that is signified. And it's, it's kind of like uh, to, as a nod to another sacrament, the Eucharist, uh, when Christ says, this is my body and, and those who have it will have eternal life. I mean, it, it actually does what it says, what Christ says it does, right? It causes turn, eternal life. So as Dennis was saying, sacraments aren't just expressions of internal sentiments. They are those things, but maybe more importantly, they're causes of objective realities in us. Eternal life, for example. So they cause what they say they're going to do. And part of their efficacy, the term that the church uses, uh, is it's called ex opere operato, which means by the working of the sacrament, it actually does this. By the working... Um, by the by, the action, very fact of the actions being performed, and the performer or the worker or the actor in the sacraments is not necessarily or not principally the priest or the deacon. It's Jesus, and whereas you might have a bad day at work, uh, or I might have a bad day at work, Jesus never has a bad day at work. When he's he, the best. He's the best. When he shows up to work, <laughs> the job gets done every single time. And that's it's what, kind of annoying, actually. He's so good at it. <laughs> he is pretty good. So this is what it means that the sacraments are efficacious, that, that Christ is present and operating in them, and they work every single time they're performed. Imagine you had a water pipe under pressure, and there was a lid on the pipe. All you have to do is open the lid, and the water comes out. If you do the right things with matter and form, then the grace is, it comes, it's dispensed um, that way. And so it's not so much like we have to depend on our, if our intention isn't right. No, you'd say the right things in the right way with all the right matter and form, and it's made real. Now, is there a certain way that we have to be in order to be receptive of, of said grace? It is, but you're, we're jumping ahead oh, okay. in our definition Sorry. a little bit. Yeah, because it says it's dispensed to us. And so there's something about us that will make that the term the church uses is fruitful. Fruitful. Sacraments aren't magic at all. They require us to cooperate with this principal worker who is Christ. But when we go back to our definition then, so a sacrament is an efficacious sign, meaning it works every time that it's signified. But what is it a sign of? Uh, efficacious sign of grace. Of that's grace. what I was just going to say. On, that's right. Yeah, so what is grace, Chris? <laughs> well, what, that, that's a great question. What, did, what I found a very good, uh, helpful... Uh, understanding of grace came from uh, Father Virgil Michael, who was a great uh, uh, figure in the American liturgical movement. And he and others in the early early 20th century liturgical movement... Was, Wait, I think I know this. Is it yeah? Christ life? It is Christ, Christ life. Christ hyphen exactly. life. Christ That's life. Something. So what is grace? Now, because I think this was at least true of my own formation, is grace seemed to be some sort of quasi-material energy power that would get that you would get right? When you would go and receive a sacrament. Spiritual vitamins. Yeah, like exactly. A, or a prize. Yeah, or you go to the, the refectory and you push your uh, cup up to the uh, pop or soda dispenser and uh, the, it comes out. Isn't that what grace is? Mm-hmm. Yeah, apparently, no, it's not. Oh, it's right, not, right. It's, not right. It's, it's Christ's life. So grace isn't some 
inert thing. It's divine life itself, the life of Jesus Christ that is uh, given to us in the, in the sacrament. And so you know, the, the church goes on to talk about actual graces and prevenient graces and sacramental oh, graces. Prevenient graces. Yeah, yeah. Actual, gra- habitual graces uh, and sacramental graces. I had graces. no idea any of these things yeah. existed. Well, yeah. And it, it, it seems almost a little artificial after a while that we're parsing out, you know, types of grace, uh, of types of divine life. But when she speaks about the sacrament, she says that each sacrament has a grace proper to itself. So that the grace of confirmation, for example, will help the recipient to live out the new life of the confirmed person, to defend the faith, to deepen the baptismal call. The grace of anointing is to help the person to join his or her sufferings uh, with those of Christ uh, it, it, for, for others in the church. And so each sacrament has a different type of sacramental divine life that helps the recipient to live the Christian life uh, to the full. Which would be especially relevant in marriage, I would think, right? The difficulty of sharing your life and house with someone. Boy, is that so true, right, Chris? No, That's a different podcast. I like what what you said there, and it's revealed something to me that I've I've often thought about or, or, you know, meditated on, but couldn't ever really grasp what I I was really, you know, truly thinking. And, And that's with the sacrament of confirmation. I often said that, um, I was confirmed in eighth grade, and um, I, I often say that I was not ready to be confirmed in eighth grade, and that I wasn't really, at that point in my life, understanding what confirmation was, or at a point in my life where I wanted to just give my fiat to the faith. But what you're saying is that that was important for me because it gave me you know, the fortitude to continue being confirmed in my faith after that. And and maybe now I'm thinking that if I wasn't confirmed in eighth grade, maybe I would not be where I am right now in the faith because that, that is, uh, that is this, the, the grace there is oriented to that specific sacrament. And so yeah. that's, that's actually really cool because I never thought about it that way before. Well, here's something else to consider, especially with the sacrament of confirmation, along with uh, a sacrament being an efficacious sign of grace, uh, three of the sacraments also give us sacramental character, and confirmation is one of them. Baptism is the other, and holy orders uh, is the third. And what um, sacramental character is, is a conformity to uh, Christ, and particularly his priesthood that is indelible. It's never to be erased. But the key word that the catechism will use to describe sacramental character is that it empowers or enables the recipient to exercise the priesthood of Jesus Christ. And so uh, that you mentioned confirmation was, uh, uh, was really insightful because what you received along with sacramental grace at confirmation was this sacramental character conforming you to Christ the high priest and enabling you to, giving you the power to exercise that for the rest of your life. Right. Think about it this way. You know, the catechism says that confirmation is roughly equivalent to the, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit that the apostles got at Pentecost. So the apostles were trying to figure out, who is this Jesus? Is he dead? Is he, we saw him alive. What does this mean for us? Or what's the church? Maybe they didn't know what their church would be yet. And all of a sudden, Pentecost comes in. Boom! All these capacities come. All this knowledge, understanding, the ability to speak in different languages. Now, we weren't there on the day of Pentecost. How do you share in that? Well, the confirmation is the way that the church, which has received the entire authoritative power of Christ, then gives it to each individual um, Christian. And then, of course, what are the effects of your life being transformed by the Holy Spirit at Pentecost? It's never, you're never the same again. And I guess I, maybe 
maybe this is common, but I was kind of treating it as like a graduation. I'm like, okay, now I'm ready to, to do this rather than maybe what it is is more of a commencement where it's saying, okay, now, now go do this. Because I think, you know, even with ordination, you go to school, 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 you study and study and study, and then now you're ordained a priest. And, and now you've learned all this, and now, now you are qualified to do this. But that's not actually what's happening here. Um, the study is important so that you can be, you know, ready for that point of commencement to go forward to when you receive the sacrament, you have more tools that you can use for your vocation. Right. Being alive with the life of the Holy Spirit is definitely a kind of maturation. So you can see it as a growth in the maturation of the Christian life. But really behind that is this fundamental um, increase in capacity, which you would hope would happen by the time you're old enough to handle it. All right. Let's continue on with our uh, little uh, definition from the catechism. So a sacrament is an efficacious sign of grace and for some of them sacramental character uh, instituted by Christ. This is really Tricky one. That's right. Show me, Chris, where Christ started and wrote down the rite of ordination of priests. That's right. Did he hand over to uh, the apostles prior to the ascension uh, the rite of I confirmation? I get the sense that you guys that? are working on something right now. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, you hear the critique of certain you know, people against Catholicism. Where's that in the Bible? Where's right, that's that the, the voice we hear from outside, yeah. And that's why the scripture and tradition have to operate together. The church has been doing it you know, all this time, and the scripture reveals part of what the church has been doing and why. Mm-hmm. Jesus, of course, didn't hand over a, a book of, of rights to the apostles. Um, on the other hand, he didn't just leave it to them to sort out and figure out after he was gone. He, in fact, was the one to institute these. And within those parameters, uh, doctors of the church have debated, well, how explicit or, uh, was this institution? How the Catechism uh, puts it is this way. It says, the mysteries of Christ's life are the foundations of what he would henceforth dispense in the sacraments through the ministers of his church for what was visible in our Savior has passed over into his mysteries. And what this means is the things that Jesus did in the flesh 2,000 years ago instituted what he would continue to do through the sacraments even today. So how did Jesus institute the sacrament of confirmation? by sending the Holy Spirit upon his disciples. Uh, How did he institute the sacrament of ordination? By uh, ordaining priests to continue to serve in his name. How did he institute the sacrament of marriage? By marrying himself to his bride, which is the church. All these things that he did, he continues to do uh, for us today. I think that's very, very important. You know, in the 20th century, they really, a lot of theologians rediscovered the notion of the mystical body, and we'll talk about that another day. But the mystical body means the church, that's the heads of the church, the hierarchical heads, but also the members of the church, are the ones who are now dispensing the life and grace that Christ dispensed while he was on earth. All of Christ's authority was given to the church. And people often will see the church as a human institution, and they'll critique, you know, all of its failings and all that, but Basically, the logic is everything that Christ wanted to do, he's not walking around on earth in the physical body he had, but he's allowing the church to do that. And so this divine nature of the church as the dispenser of grace is something that's very, very important to consider. It's Christ's action through his body, the mystical body. But his body still continues to use those things that he did on earth. So again, um, it wasn't for the church then or now to change matter and form of the sacraments. So we think of maybe... Um, 
about using a, a non-gluten host, which ceased to be wheat bread at that point. The church just doesn't have it in her power to make that change because these things are rooted in what Christ did on earth. Okay. Right. Yeah, let's keep going. All right. Instituted by Christ um, and entrusted to the church. So the sacraments belong to the church, which herself is sometimes called a sacrament. The church is, St. Augustine uh, uses this line about and I paraphrase, as he slept the sleep of death uh, upon the cross, there came forth from his side the wondrous sacrament of the whole church. So just like that. That sounds like an exact, that doesn't sound like paraphrasing. It sounds like you memorized that. (laughs) As the first Adam uh, was sleeping in the garden, uh, God opened his side and drew out Eve, the mother of uh, all the natural born living. So now this second Adam, as he lies sleeping at a tree in a garden, had his side open and the church Uh, The sacrament of the church, uh, the mystical body of Christ was drawn forth. And so all of the seven... You're you're talking about the blood and the water from his side, yeah. Right. Uh, So uh, the church is the the dispenser, the owner. The sacraments are for the church. They build up the church and they belong to the church. Uh, And also uh, her ministers, too, are the ones who uh, dispense the sacraments uh, in, in the church's name, in Christ's name. And that's where we get that authority, because this has been entrusted to the church? Right. The, I think the word authority is author, and the mm-hmm. author is, uh, is Jesus, mm-hmm. and he continues to be the author of the sacraments and now acts through his ministers. And there are a few places where you really hear that. So the words uh, in confession, for instance, very clear, I forgive your sins, the priest says. Well, can the priest forgive sins? No, but he's standing in the person of Christ, and so he's speaking Christ's words to you, and you couldn't hear them otherwise. So the priest is actually speaking the words of Christ. Your sins are forgiven. And you know, about this point too, the minister, there's a lot of a weight, a lot of weighty responsibility on the minister to speak in Christ's name. He has to be very intentional about what he is doing and who he, he is forgiving. So the intention, this is a, uh, the, the minister, the, the church says, must intend to do what the church does. And again, here's where theologians come in and debate, well, how active must the minister's intention be if his, if his attention wanders a little bit and he starts to think about the football game or something like that? Has he lost the intention? It has to be. The minister is generally called to have a very active intention. He has to forgive a specific person. He has to consecrate this bread. It can't just be this nebulous type of intention. And, but the reason for all of this is that the sacraments, again, are not magical things. They're, they're, Jesus has incorporated humans to, and uses them to work through them. So the priest doesn't all of a sudden become, the church's minister doesn't become a robot or an automaton or something like that. He remains an active and willing co- a participant along with Jesus. This is why ex opere operato, or by the work of the worker, really is a protection of all of us. If the priest is having a bad day, he only has to have the minimum intention really to want to do this, but the words and the matter and form are all there, and so it's, we can trust the efficacy of those sacraments, even if the priest is having a, a bad day. And, and we see this reflected in liturgy itself, when the, when the Eucharist is elevated, like everything's pointing, everything's focused, everything is designed in liturgy to show that, that focal point. Right, and if you follow the, uh, the rubrics of the right, pretty much it'll operate as you want it to. If you are engaging your will as the minister. Yeah, so 
you can you can have that bad day, but your will has to be right. uh, pretty pretty. If the light priest light. is going through the motions and says, "I don't want to. I refuse to confect the Eucharist." It's not going to happen. But presuming that the minimum requirements of intentionality are there, it, it's a guarantee of efficacy. We could probably do a whole podcast on that, right? Right. <laughs> we have to get some, more, some yeah. smarter people in yeah. here to yeah, do maybe. that. But yeah, it's uh, right now. I, I asked. I called Chris one day because I went to confession somewhere, and the priest said, "I, I forgive your sins in the name of the Christian community, the Church." which is not what the mm. right asked for. And so that's said, not right. What the, exactly. I said, does the, does the church supply? It wasn't my fault. The right words weren't spoken. Do you remember what you told me? Chris? I don't. I hope you I told me it right was answer. not a valid confession because the Christian community doesn't have the authority to forgive my sins. Christ does. So when he says, I forgive your sins, he, Christ forgives your sins. So I had to go to confession again. One of the last things that Pope Benedict did before he uh, ceased being Pope was at the baptism of a child, uh, it says, uh, the Christian community welcomes you. And he changed that to the church welcomes you because the Christian community is not, uh, it, it, it's a church and a mystical body uh, that, that we are a part of. Right. And the church, of course, would include the Trinity, the angels, the saints, all of creation. So the church is a little more than just the Christian community in your local parish. It's yeah. a lot more, in fact. Yeah. These questions about uh, validity or invalidity about sacramental formulae, though, I mean, at the point that you even have to ask, is it valid or not? I mean, why, uh, why mess with them? Just do what, uh, what uh, is prescribed from us uh, for the church. These are entrusted to the church. They're her sacraments. So. But related to the minister, and you brought this up before, so the sacrament is an efficacious sign of grace instituted by Christ, entrusted to his church, by which divine life is dispensed to us. So what does this mean for the recipient of the, uh, of the, of the sacrament? Now, what state do we have to be to be receptive of said grace? Yeah, well, again, this uh, said it before, sacraments aren't magic. They don't take you over against your will. You have to uh, be able, you, we're called to be co-operators along with uh, the sacraments. And so Jesus forces salvation and grace on nobody. You have, to, you have to want it. And so there's a proper disposition that we should have for them to be fruitful. Now the, it's not valid that the church uses. It's the term fruitful. So our uh, uh, cooperation as a recipient of the sacrament does not invalidate the sacrament, but it will not be uh, fruitful for us if we're not in the proper disposition. So uh, let's talk about adolescent confirmation. So um, you can put an obstacle. Let's say you don't want to be confirmed. You're there because, uh, you know, your grandmother. Everyone's doing it. <laughs> Everyone else is doing fine. I won't have to go to CCD anymore. It'll make, make my mom happy. I mean, that's not the most ideal type of uh, disposition to be receiving a sacrament. And in a sense, what we're doing, I mean, if we can use this, uh, this term, or this image you used before about the, the water pipe. I mean, it's as if we're putting a dam uh, we're damming up the grace. Ah, damn. Right. Um, um, yeah, don't damn. <laughs> Put an umbrella over yourself so you don't get wet. <laughs> That's exactly it. And if, we, if we're not disposed to be washed by this water and blood from the side of Christ, you know, if we're not thirsty like the deer who's yearning for uh, running streams, then we're not, uh, we're not going to, re to, to be recipients of this divine life. So when it comes to being the recipient, we have to place no obstacle in the way of God's grace. What about your average indifferent 14-year-old who gets confirmed, not really thinking about it either way, just going along? It's valid for them? Be valid, but not fruitful. Do they have to f actually form an intention of the will that I accept confirmation, even if just because mom said so? Or is that basic well, that they're walking down the aisle? Is that enough? Uh, it's probably enough. 
to, but it wouldn't be as fruitful as the person who's, say, behind that person saying, you know, I've been uh, waiting to celebrate this sacrament and to deepen my baptismal identity with Christ in the mystical body and to be enabled to go out and preach the good news, uh, enlivened by the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Now, that's a dis that's a, it's in a state of grace. Uh, that's a proper disposition, and the, the sacrament will be much more fruitful for that person than the one who's... Uh, Kind of not not really wishing to be there. So should you wait till you're 35 to be confirmed when you can understand it? I mean, I was, Ooh, I I was, that an, was, coming. I was an idiot mm -hmm. in eighth grade. What did I know about anything? Well, it's not about knowledge, right? It's not just about knowledge. It's, um, it's not just the smartest people who are the saints. It's about how it's about what you know, how you love, how you pray, and how you serve others. I mean, that that's what sacramental formation programs are meant to do is to uh, help the recipient to be uh, as fertile soil as possible for the grace that's coming. So I don't know if it's... I wasn't given them much to work with. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't... But, you know, even now, bishops uh, in our own country, uh, in the United States, discuss, well, which is the best age to receive the sacrament of confirmation? Is it age 7 or is it up to age 16? And I think the answer has to, in large part, take into account at which age is the recipient most... Uh, uh, docile and most able to receive the grace most fruitfully. But, you know, in preparing for this, I looked up the catechism and it talked about con uh, confirmation being like a new Pentecost for us. And that was the first time I'd heard of it. So I could probably say now, Lord, I didn't know it then, but I know it now. Make this real, make this more fruitful in me. And it's because I was confirmed so many years ago that I could say that. Is that right? Can the fruitfulness grow and yes. the validity of the uh, sacrament? Yeah, it remains valid. God's beyond but, time, right? So... Yeah, the sacrament remains valid, even if you weren't ready to receive it when you were 14 years old. But the, the, the fruitfulness can grow as we remove the obstacles between us uh, and Christ. And as we uh, work with those graces, then, then yet your confirmation, your marriage, uh, your baptism, uh, the more we work with those graces throughout our lives, the more uh, fruitful they are for us. Maybe anybody listening to this podcast could take a moment and say, Lord, when I was confirmed, I didn't know as much as I know now. Please make this day to day, a new Pentecost in me, make the graces of my confirmation more fruitful. Do you think that, would you recommend that? That's a pretty good prayer. Oh, good. Yeah. Oh, we'll have well, to write that one so, down. Lord, please do it. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's wrap this, uh, this part up then. So uh, sacrament is an efficacious sign of grace instituted by Christ entrusted to his church by which divine life is dispensed to us by the work of the Holy Spirit. And so the Holy Spirit is always acting in the sacraments. Every sacrament has what's called an epiclesis, which means a calling down of the Holy Spirit upon uh, the recipient. And this along with, uh, we've heard this word before in the podcast, the anamnesis. The catechism, I'm going to need that one again. Yeah. The catechism says with the anamnesis and the epiclesis, this really uh, characterizes how the Holy Spirit works. So the Holy Spirit is the, the church's living memory. The, the Spirit is the church's mnemonic uh, uh, device to get back to, the, to what Christ did. And so the anamnesis recalls uh, the saving work of Christ and makes it present and is, uh, uh, makes that grace present and active for the recipient today. Excellent. Well, uh, that is all the time we have for this week. I hope you wrote all of that down, and uh, I'm sure we'll get a lot of questions about this <laughs> week's episode. But uh, it's time for an email question from our listener. Mail call! Mail call! Oh, Moses, Moses, why do you question me? Why do you care? Today, we have a similar debate over this. Anyone know what this is, class? Anyone? Okay, so... Uh, 
This week, we have a continuation from an email from Paul. And originally, Paul was asking about uh, Hawaiian dancers in the sanctuary and things like that. And then you guys had some really great uh, responses to that. But the second part of his question is he wants to know about addressing liturgical abuse. So if he sees something that is a liturgical abuse, and this is a question that we've actually gotten a few times in our email, what what should you do? Well, if I remember the, the question correctly from last week, I think you said, Jesse, that, you know, we may not, we're not there. We don't have all the information. And so when a question at least comes in to me, it's very hard to try to uh, determine from my own because I'm not in the situation. And so the first thing I say to the, uh, the person who might call me is given the information that, uh, that they ask, I give them what the church teaches, you know, from, with, with the sources, with documents, with some of the theological reasoning behind them. And the second thing I say is the person you need to talk to about this is your pastor or the person in question, and not to me or the bishop or the prefect for the Congregation for Divine Worship. Yeah, when Cardinal Lorenze was making the rounds uh, when he was the prefect, he said he used to get letters from you know little Mrs. Jones in some little parish <laughs> in, in Iowa saying, you know, my pastor did this instead of that, and I want you to you know come and you know smack him down. <laughs> That's not how it works. It's always on this principle of sub- subsidiarity. So start with the pastor. Do you understand what the pastor is actually doing? Is it actually an abuse, or maybe you need to know why it's being done? If it is an abuse, and then the pastor is not willing to change, then you might talk to the Towson worship director, and then maybe the bishop. Um, but it would always start there and work your way up. This basic human in- interaction, start with the person. Yeah, I wouldn't go to, to the address. president if I got a speeding ticket and say, the speed limit in this zone should not be so uh, low. You know, I would actually, you know, talk with the people that are locally in charge, right? Yeah, but it's true to, you know, to, to follow up and to find out what it actually the church teaches about this particular thing that you're concerned about. And this is not always clear, and things are constantly changing. There's a new uh, right of marriage coming out, uh, legislation changes. Uh, there was a change to the, to the policy of foot washing uh, recently. Uh, when the new missile came out in English in 2011, there were rubrical changes there. And so there are a lot of things that we might think are abuses, but may in fact uh, not be the case. So the first thing is just Find out what it is that the church teaches, and if you can, even better still, why does the church teach that or prescribe that? But again, as a matter of, of charity and justice, the person, the conversation be, should be taking place between the concerned person and uh, ultimately the pastor of the parish. And I would, I would probably add that, you know, considering that somebody may have already tried that, is there a next thing that they should do after they've communicated with the pastor? You know, each uh, diocese may handle it uh, differently, but uh, a, a member of, of any member of the faithful is, is uh, welcome to and encouraged to contact uh, the bishop, you know, at that point, and he can uh, direct the process. I'm going to go right to the Pope. I'm going to go right to the Pope <laughs> next time. But, uh, well, thank you very much for your information. I think that's very helpful. I, again, that is a very common question that we get from people. So hopefully that, that helps, and hopefully, Paul, that answers your question. So uh, if you have questions for us at the Liturgy Guys, you can email us at questions at liturgyguys.com. And thank you for listening, and God bless. The Liturgy Guys is produced by the Liturgical Institute. If you like what you've heard today, like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. And be sure to check out liturgicalinstitute.org to discover more about our degree programs, public events, and publications. Refresh your soul and renew the church at what Bishop Robert Barron calls one of the very best places in the country to receive formation in the Catholic liturgical tradition.